The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome, welcome. Nice to see you all. So today I'd like to give a talk about this story that we find in the suttas that, uh, I don't know, I kind of like it, it's uh, a little bit silly. <laughs> maybe maybe silly is not the right word. That um, it has these exaggerated portions of it, which I think are kind of fun. Maybe that's the right word, a little bit fun. And we might even ask, like, what is the purpose of having some of these stories that are fun? And I would say, actually, so maybe I'll clarify. So um, we have the suttas, these kind of like the scriptures, we might say. And then like maybe a thousand years later, they wrote what are called the commentaries. And the commentaries are where all this very colorful, kind of what we might say, like fun stuff. So it's not in the earliest uh, strata of literature. It's not from the time of the Buddha, but sometime later as they were filling in the backstory, like, well, why did that happen? And they, sometimes the backstory is some fantastical thing, as, as is the case here. And so I'm sharing this just because, uh, I don't know, it uh, kind of makes me smile a little bit, that, this story. But there's also some really good teachings in here. So it's not just entertainment for entertainment's sake, but it it's, can be entertainment too. But also I like that this idea that, okay, that dharma doesn't have to be so dry and boring. <laughs> It can be dry and boring, if that's your thing. There's plenty of dry and boring things in there. But, uh, and to be sure, a lot of it, you know, there's these lists. And I actually love the lists. But I want to kind of like highlight that there's more than just lists. And these uh, Buddhist teachings, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Paths, Seven Factors Awakening, Five Faculties, Ten Paramis. Like, you know, all these. Okay, so this is a story of the Buddha talking with an ogre. (laughs) This is how we translate this word, yaka, as an ogre. So, and so uh, these ogres, yakas, um, they show up in the Pali Canon, you know, just a few times, and they have uh, different roles uh, when they show up. And some of them are depicted as really devout followers of the Buddha, and some are depicted as demons that like to eat humans. And they're not necessarily malicious, but they do eat humans. So, <laughs> so there's something about that, I guess. But, uh, but we might see that um, in the case of this story, it's, we, I might understand as a rhetorical device or a literary device, and that this ogre asks questions. And it's the answering of the questions where we get some of the teachings. But we might learn something about the questions that get asked. And in the same way, we see lots of uh, humans, as well as if there's going to be any non-humans that show up, um, and any suttas, they often are asking questions too. So this is the way that I am kind of holding them, as just this rhetorical device as a way to provide opportunities for that Buddha to talk about something. So, 
Okay, so this is from the this is the starts with the I'll start with the backstory that comes from the commentary, right? So this is uh, like I said, like a thousand years after the time of the Buddha. So the Buddha goes to Alavaka. This is the ogre's name, Alavaka. I kind of just like to say it, Alavaka. Alavaka the Yaka. Yaka is ogre. So, and Alav. Alavaka lives in Alavi, so <laughs> it does kind of have this like fairy tale kind of feeling, right? Even just the names of these uh, people. So the Buddha goes to visit, goes to Alavi to see Alavaka the Yaka, and Alavaka is not there. Apparently, he's at a meeting of ogres that's happening in the Himalayas. Just kind of curious. I don't know what the meetings are about, but uh, so. Uh, but the Buddha, he shows up anyway. He goes to Alavaka's place, and um, he knocks on the door. And there's, I guess, Alavaka lives in a big, really big place. We might maybe a mansion or something. We might imagine. And the doorkeeper opens the door and says, "The Blessed One has come at an improper time." So it's interesting that the doorkeeper recognizes, oh, this is the Buddha, and just says, you know, this is not a good time. And the Buddha responds, yes, but if it would not be burdensome for you, I would like to spend one night here. And this was the case that uh, the monastics, like some of the Buddha's followers, where they would often be traveling and would just stay at people's places. And, you know, they would... For alms, they would have food that people would give them in places where they would stay. So this is not an unusual thing to happen. So the doorkeeper says, well, it will not be burdensome for me, but that yucca, this ogre, is rough and harsh, and he doesn't even pay homage to his mother and father. So saying he's not going to pay homage to you, because he doesn't even pay homage to his parents. He doesn't even respect his parents. But the Buddha isn't phased. And he says to the doorkeeper, I know his rough character, but that won't be an obstacle for me. So if it would not be burdensome for you, I would like to spend one night here. And the doorkeeper responds, it would not be burdensome for me, but the yaka is like a hot frying pan. He does not have regard for his mother or father or for recluses and Brahmins or for the Dharma. And when others come here, he drives them insane or splits their hearts or grabs them by the feet and hurls them across the Ganges River. And the Buddha is completely undeterred and says, I know, but if it won't be burdensome for you, I would like to spend one night here. The doorkeeper says, it will not be burdensome for me, but if I allow you to stay here without informing him, he may kill me. So let me inform him. So the doorkeeper left and to talk with Alavaka. So I, you know, I don't know how ogres travel. I don't know if a doorkeeper was there. I don't know how this works, but somehow he goes to wherever Alavaka is to say, the Buddha is at your place. So, while this is happening, the Buddha enters Alavaka's house or mansion or whatever his abode is, and he sits down and gives a talk, gives a Dharma talk to the people that are there. 
So apparently they're maybe housekeeping, you know, servant. I don't know who's there exactly. Gives a Dharma talk to them. And then um, and then when the doorkeeper meets where Alivaka says, he rushed back to his home in a fury and demanded that the Blessed One leave. So that's all this colorful black backstory. Now we're getting to what actually happened, or what actually happened, what's in the suttas, what's, you know, in the earlier strata. This is in the sutta, and it starts, Thus have I heard. For those of you who are um, new to this, very often suttas, discourses start with this, Thus have I heard. This is um, kind of bringing to mind the idea that this was the Buddha speaking and somebody remembered what he was speaking. And so thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Alavi, the haunt of the Yaka Alavaka. Then the Yaka Alavaka approached the Blessed One and said to him, Get out! All right, the Blessed One said, and he went out. Come in. All right, the Blessed One said and went in. And the second time, the Yaka Alavaka said, Get out. All right, so the Buddha walks out. Get in. All right, so the Buddha comes in. A third time, Get out. Okay, he walks out. <laughs> get in. So the Buddha goes back in. So, the kind of the backstory to this, like why Alifika is doing this and why the Buddha is allowing himself to do, why he's doing this, is because Alifika wants to make the Buddha angry because he uh, has learned that he, the Buddha is, um, abides in loving kindness and when he, as long as he has loving kindness, he's immune to those weapons that uh, Alifika might have. So he wants to get him angry so they will no longer have loving kindness. And the Buddha has this idea why he is following Alavaka's demands is because he knew that it was not possible to train a stubborn person with stubbornness. It's true, right? We kind of even know this in our own lives. You can't train a stubborn person with stubbornness. In fact, there's a few teachings about this that the Buddha gives that you can't teach somebody about ethical behavior to an unethical person. And there's a thing, and you can't teach faith or confidence to somebody who doesn't have faith or confidence. So this is kind of really interesting. For me, when I heard this, I really thought about this public discourse. And then I also thought, well, then how does this work? How can you teach, or how can people learn if they're stubborn or how can they learn if they don't have confidence or don't have ethical behavior turns out that the answer is in the timing like if somebody is unethical but then you want to support them behaving in an ethical way you only talk about ethical stuff when they are already being ethical because people aren't unethical 100% of the time and this makes sense to me. Kind of like the burden is on the, the one who wants to help or the teacher is to be sensitive to what's happening to the other person. And if you're sincere and really want to help and support somebody, then you need to 
be attuned to where they are and to recognize when is the right time to say something? When is the right time to share some wisdom you might have or some ideas that you might have? Because it's not always the right time. And we know this. Like, if I'm stubborn, I'm not, am I particularly stubborn? No, I'm not a particularly stubborn person. But I know that if somebody's like really pushing me, you know, then I just, there is a part of me that just doesn't like to be pushed around. And so, you know, I tend to be like, wait, what's happening here? So we all have this experience. Okay, so three times Olivia tells the Buddha, get out, come in, get out, come in. And then the um, fourth time, Olivia says, get out. And the Buddha says, I won't go out. Do whatever you have to do. So the Buddha's kind of saying, I don't care what you're doing. I'm not going out anymore. And then Alavaka asks the Buddha some questions. He says, I'll ask you a question. And if you don't answer me, I'll drive you insane, or I'll split your heart, or I'll grab you by the feet and hurl you across the Ganges River. None of those sound really good, right? Drive you insane, split your heart, or get thrown across the river. And the Buddha replies, this is Diana's commentary, like, I don't see anyone in this world who could drive me insane, split my heart, or grab me by the feet and hurl me across the Ganges. But ask whatever you want. So, you know, the Buddha, he's not threatened. Of course he's not threatened. But I love this. I've been um, thinking about this recently in a number of different settings, different teachings I've been giving in some different places. This idea what would we do if the Buddha said, ask whatever you want? You know, like, what would you ask? What, what are some of their questions that we feel like, that, uh, if we knew the answer would really make a difference? And what are some of the questions that we consider that the Buddha could ask? Ask whatever you want. So here's Alavaka's question, which turns out to be four questions. Alavaka asks, what is a person's best treasure? What practiced well brings happiness? What is the sweetest of tastes? Living in what way is one's life called the best? So this first one, what is a person's best treasure? So a treasure, we might think of what you know, something that we value, something that is uh, maybe like a resource, and something about treasures, like maybe even hidden, or... Maybe something that's, you know, not obvious. Or it could also be something obvious like wealth or possessions or something like this. But Alavaka is asking, what is a person's best treasure? This is an interesting question. Because I think society right now wants us to tell tells us all these things. What is the best treasure? 
if you behave this way, look this way, your bank account is this way, you live in this person, drive, or live in this location, drive this car, or whatever it is, right? We're, we're being sent this message all this time about what is, makes a person valuable or, or the most valuable thing that they have or something. What is a person's best treasure? And for me, I kind of think oh, this is, and it really humanizes this ogre, right? He's concerned about wealth and security, just like humans. So then the second question, what well-practiced brings happiness? So I appreciate that Olafaka, he's asking, well-practiced brings happiness. What well-practiced brings happiness? So he's recognizing that it's not something that can, you can just get by snapping your fingers. It's something that requires practice. So Olafaka recognizes that happiness isn't something that just magically gets bestowed upon a person, but what, what can we do? What can we practice? What can we cultivate and develop that's going to bring happiness. That, they, and maybe we can also say ogres just want to be happy, <laughs> just like humans, right? So this way, but this idea that happiness doesn't necessarily come from things that are easily acquired. But maybe it takes some effort for things, for some happiness that's maybe more enduring or deeper or more than just fleeting or superficial. The third question that Olivaka asks is, what is the sweetest of tastes? Maybe referring to a little bit of uh, experiencing pleasure. Taste, we might understand here, like taste um, to mean experience. And this word right now, it just uh, rasa. Is, can be understood sometimes as experiences. So he's asking, what's the most pleasant thing? What is the sweetest of tastes? What, what's, the, what's the most pleasant? And then the last question is, living in what way is one's life called the best? So how to live the best life? We might, you know, we ask ourselves this question too. We don't want to have a life filled with regret and remorse. We don't want to get to the end of our life and feel like, oh, I wasn't a good life. Somehow I didn't reach my potential or didn't do what I thought was important or something like this. So for me, I appreciate this, that this ogre, he's just like us. He's concerned with wealth or security, happiness, pleasure, and living a good life. These are things I would say humans care about too. Chances are all of us in this room care about these things also. So the Buddha answers all of us questions. In a very straightforward way, clearly and unambiguously. And I appreciate this very much. You might, maybe I should have said this, this is all in verse, right? So, um, you know, the English maybe does, is a little bit clunky. This, that's why the English feels a little bit clunky is because it's written in verse. And then when it gets translated, it's clunky. It's clunky in Pali also, but 
So the Buddha gives four answers to four questions. So one answer for each question. Faith is a person's best treasure. Faith, sada, we could translate this as conviction or confidence. It doesn't have to be believing in the unbelievable or something like this. I'll unpack this a little bit, but faith. Faith is a person's best treasure. The Dharma, practiced well, brings happiness. Truth is the sweetest of tastes. And living with wisdom, one's life is called the best. So, we might uh, ask ourselves, you know, okay, well, what does this mean exactly? Faith in what? And what is this dharma? And what does it mean to practice the dharma? And when they're talking about truth, does this mean like speaking truth or finding the truth? Or what does that really mean? And if wisdom is important, like how does one gain wisdom? And what is wisdom? And how would we recognize it? So, Alavaka asked, and the, and the Buddha said, faith is a person's best treasure. We need a certain amount of confidence, or conviction, to even start any practice. We have to have this belief that's not completely, we don't have all the data in, that this is going to be a worthwhile use of our energy, worthwhile of our time, worthwhile of our resources. It requires a little bit of faith or confidence or conviction. Without that, we will never start a practice, right? Of course not. So it's part of, he's saying it's the best treasure, maybe because it's something that's kind of hidden like a treasure, but it's also, if you have the confidence you can start all kinds of things. Not only just Dharma practice or Buddhist practice or a spiritual practice, but so many things in life, right? Just often require just a little bit of confidence to begin. And then when we put it down or we, it slips, then we just need a little bit of confidence just to pick it back up again. Without that confidence, we might fall into like, oh, I can never do it. This is too hard for me. Everybody else can do it. What's wrong with me? Or something like that. And we could just slip into inaction. So this confidence is the best treasure. And that's, we also could say that in the same way that treasure could be like a type of wealth, And there's a way in which a type of wealth can reduce the suffering that's associated with poverty or hunger or not having a place to live. So there's a way that treasure can reduce suffering. It's not the only way that reduces suffering. But there's a way in which also faith can reduce suffering because it has this, uh, it supports practice. And some of you will know that it's one of the five faculties. I'm not going to go into this list of the five faculties, but it's one of five things that really support practice, is having this confidence or conviction. So faith is a person's best treasure. I'm using this word faith. 
feel free to use confidence, conviction, whatever you want. You don't have to use the word faith. The Dharma practiced well brings happiness. So what does that mean, the Dharma? There's a few things. Maybe some of you know, right, is the teachings of the Buddha practiced well. So we learn things from the teachings and then more than just having an intellectual understanding, more than just memorizing all the lists, is there a way that we can put it to practice in our life? Is there a way that we can, you know, embody it? Instead of just, uh, I remember I've heard Gil say a few times, he, he had this expression, I don't know if he still says it, he used to say, night stand Buddhists. He's talked about all these people that had all these books on the Buddhism and the Dharma on their nightstand. <laughs> and they would read them and that was sufficient for them. And he said that will take you, you know, a certain distance, but really you need to practice, put into your life what the teachings are, including meditation practice, ethical behavior, wisdom, these types of things. So the Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. We also could kind of like summarize the Dharma as a path of practice. And many of you will know that Sila Samadipanya is kind of, we could summarize this path of practice. Sila, ethical behavior. Samadhi, mental development, meditation. Panya, wisdom is seeing things clearly and how things really are as best we can, as opposed to allowing our ideas about things to obscure what's really happening. We could say that's part of wisdom. And so the the Dharma practiced well brings happiness because there's a way... It's not only that, I mean, ethical behavior brings happiness, it's the complete absence of remorse, of regret, this bliss of blamelessness. There's a certain amount of happiness to know that, uh, like if you uh, see the policeman walking up to your door, like, oh, you just know that they need something and you don't have to feel bad or something. Oh my gosh, why did I hear? You're just like, oh, maybe there's... I can help with a neighbor. Maybe there's a problem with the neighbors or something like this. And so, but also, awakening, this complete liberation is described as the highest happiness. So the Dharma, practiced well, brings happiness. It brings more and more freedom and peace and ease into our lives. And I gave a uh, past month or so a number of talks about what is the Dharma. I'm not going to go through all of it now. But there's a way in which just aligning with or tuning into what's happening, that's kind of the Dharma as well. It's being, having some clarity about what's actually happening, what's there. And then the last one, oh, sorry. One, two, three. The third one, truth is the sweetest of tastes. So what is like, what is the most delicious? Or, you know, what is like the most delectable? What is the most, uh, 
something that's maybe unambiguously delicious. And we might say that truthful speech, that when it's done and when it's kind and given at the right time and is done in a way that's beneficial, kind of whether we are speaking it or whether we hear it, there's a way that it nourishes the mind in the way that food might, something that you're tasting might. Truthful speech is allows the mind to kind of like calm to be calm, right? Whenever we're thinking about uh, telling a little white lie or if we're planning to tell a little white lie, have you ever noticed how much planning goes into that? We have to like rehearse it over and over and over again <laughs> if we're going to tell a white lie or if somebody tells us something and we're not quite sure is that true or not, then we just kind of have this little agitation in mind. Did they really mean that? Or, But there's something when we speak the truth and we know others that are speaking the truth, there's something that's really calming about that. It's really not agitating at all as opposed to, you know, agitating. It's agitating when, even with little white lies. It's something to, I don't know, just for us to practice with is noticing when is our speech agitating, trying to maybe say things that are stretching the truth or or maybe going around the truth or something like this. But again, it's not truth just for truth's sake because the truth can be hurtful also. Yes, you actually do look fat in that dress. <laughs> right? So instead, we want to use it in a way that, uh, you know, I love you no matter what you're wearing. You know, that's kind of the things that we say instead of, yeah, actually, that's not so great. Or we would say, you know, blue really looks really good on you. I like blue. And so rather than the red dress they're wearing, or, you know, I'm just making this up. But this to say truth is really important, but truthful speech doesn't give us license to be rude or inappropriate. And it's a skill. It's definitely a skill to learn how to say things that are supportive and beneficial. But also, the sweetest truth is the sweetest of tastes because the taste of freedom, peace, ease is sweet also. No matter what degree of liberation this putting down of burdens that we have uh, experienced, there's something that you know has this flavor as sweet as something that feels, uh, you know, our, our bodies, our biology, our um, through evolution, right? We like things that are sweet and want more, and it's the same experience of touching into some of this peace and well-being that's possible with practice. So then the last one the Buddha says is living with wisdom one's life is called the best. Then maybe I'll just say after this, uh, Alavaka's next question is, how does one gain wisdom? Because he wants to live his best life. And he asks a few other questions too, but uh, for our purposes here, I'll just stick to these ones. And the Buddha responds, 
this, like how does one gain wisdom? And maybe I'll just say a few words, like how might we understand what wisdom is? One, one part of wisdom is uh, having behavior, just how we show up in the world. There's some real wisdom to that, how we treat ourselves, how we treat others, how if behaving ethically, taking care of our minds and our bodies, taking care of others, taking care of our communities. This is part of wisdom. As well as, you know, seeing the characteristics of everything. It's impermanent. It's unsatisfactory and doesn't have an inherent essence. It's part of wisdom is seeing this and understanding this. So Alavaka asks, well, how does one gain wisdom? So, and the Buddha responds, by placing faith in the Dharma of the awakened ones, and from a desire to learn, one gains wisdom, if one is diligent and astute. So we can see that he's kind of referring back to what he was saying earlier. One gains wisdom by placing faith in the teachings of the awakened ones. So having enough confidence that you're willing to think about it or consider it and maybe put it into practice. And from a desire to learn, there can be a way, right, in which there's a certain arrogance, like I know this, I I don't need to learn that. But having a desire to learn is this curiosity, this openness, like, oh yeah, is there something for me to learn here? What is it that I don't quite see clearly or I don't understand that my life keeps on turning out a way that I don't quite want it to? Is there something that I have I don't understand? From a desire to learn, one gains wisdom if one is diligent and astute. So it is a practice. We do have to practice. I wish, right, I think all of us wish that it were easy and fast and turn our life around or even have our life continue to go the way that we want it to go or whatever it is, but it is a practice. So... One last thing that I'd like to say here actually is that it's not a, um, an accident the order that these questions are in. So it's part of the way that these things get, I don't know, preserved or written or composed. That these four qualities are not only answers to Alavaka's questions, these qualities of... Um, Faith. I have to, I am reading two things at once. Faith, the Dharma well practiced. Truth is the sweetest of tastes and wisdom. They're part of a sequence. The sequence of practice. That it begins with having enough confidence to begin, then practicing the Dharma having a commitment to the truth. And in this way, we might understand the truth as in, sometimes we might think of like mindfulness as the truth. Okay, what's really happening here? 
even if it's uncomfortable to see, even if it's actually an uncomfortable experience, but like if the understanding that we gain about ourselves can be uncomfortable to learn things about ourselves, it can be hard. And then live with wisdom. So faith, practicing the Dharma, having a commitment to truth, and living with wisdom. And it kind of goes in that direction. It's not perfectly linear. We'll have a little bit of four altogether. But that is kind of like the path of practice, maybe in a nutshell, that the Buddha's teaching to Alavaka, the yaka, Alavaka of Alavi, the yaka Alavaka of Alavi. (laughs) Faith, practicing the Dharma, having a commitment to truth, and living with wisdom. So I'll end there, and I'll open it up. See, are there some comments or questions about this? And as I was talking, I was thinking like, oh, yes. And you know what? I don't think I have it in this version of the notes. The question is, well, what happened to Olivica after he heard all that, right? Right? That's like such an obvious question. And I don't have the quote here, but um, how it ends is that Alavaka uh, decides, he becomes a follower of the Buddha, and then he decides he's going to go teach all the other ogres about the Dharma. (laughs) So there we go. So I don't know if he becomes awakened or what. I don't know, but uh, maybe. He at least changes diet. It changes diet. Was he eating humans? I don't know if he was actually eating humans, right? Because he was throwing them across the river or <laughs> making them insane or splitting their heart or something like this, right? So, yeah, there's another sutta where an ogre does eat humans, but I don't think this one does. <laughs> I know, it's kind of... It's kind of, right? See, you guys are laughing and smiling. This is partly why I like this, because it has a little bit of whimsy to it. But I'd like to open it up if there's any questions or... Comments? Yeah. Hi. Uh, thank you. Um, so at first, I, when I heard this, I thought, oh, this sound, these are universal principles, but they also sound very like Western. I see, I feel like everybody is chasing some kind of happiness or wisdom and truth and whatnot. But that was kind of, I was like, oh, it's, it's still relevant today. So I don't, I don't know if it's progress or sort of um, sitting idle, but it was nice to hear. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's part of the reason why I like it too, is because, oh, yeah, I can relate to this. Mm-hmm. We all want these things. And even though it's couched in this kind of funny story and from thousands of years ago, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like myself 10 or 20 years ago, I could still relate to it then and now. And yeah. Great, thank you. Yeah, just a comment. I was super surprised that the Buddha said faith. I thought he would say love or compassion or something like that for human's greatest treasure. So that was just like a surprise for me. Mm, nice, thank you. Maybe I will say that this word faith, sada, shows up in all kinds of lists. Lots of the lists that you haven't really heard Dharma teachers talk about. There's just there's many of them. And here's an interesting thing about faith, that... Uh, as I said, it shows up in lots of lists, and just like it does in this list, it's always the first. And almost always, wisdom is the last. And there's all kinds of different things in between. So it's this movement of faith, 
towards wisdom which leads to freedom. So there's just this idea of a path maybe is kind of what's... So maybe it's like the kernel that starts everything before the love and the compassion maybe can arise. It has to start with just thinking that the that it's possible. Maybe you just start thinking that it's possible to have love and compassion and wisdom. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anybody else have a question? Or I think Lydia also has it. It's maybe Lydia and then Bill. I'll make it fast, Bill. (laughs) Thank you, Diana. So when you were talking about all these four questions raised by Yaka, um, I don't know how to link the first one, but to me, practice Dharma is to know the truth and to gain the wisdom is to know the truth also and is practicing dharma so all this three because to me the wisdom of the buddhism seems like that three characteristics you were talking about and uh, they're so tightly linked mm-hmm. Um, but but I'm not sure about the faith, like you said, seems to have to, to be the seed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, one step at a time mm-hmm. from there. And maybe he talked about faith because he was talking to an ogre. Maybe he started there. Right? Okay, we have to start, you know, with a simple, what's, you know, the first step. You might think about that. But I, I appreciate truth, dharma, wisdom, right? They kind of, yeah, they're all linked. Yeah. Um, so I'm not quite understand what's an ogre mean. Oh, um, a troll? Like somebody that lives under, uh, mm-hmm. an ogre is like a monster? Mm-hmm. A, uh, I don't know, does anybody have a good, what's a good word for an ogre? Shrek? Shrek? <laughs> Now I understand. <laughs> Shrek. <laughs> Thank you. Shrek. Thank you. I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> Orc. Orc. <laughs> um, well, I didn't start with faith. I started with sort of desperation. Like, there's got to be some way to be happy. <laughs> I haven't tried this yet. Whoever got to lose, right? But, uh, and but maybe, it's, maybe it's just this time. There had to be a tiny little bit of faith in order for you to come back the second time. Well, it just worked. Okay, so then, but then, so your faith wasn't completely because you had no data, right? You had some like, oh yeah, it worked. I'm going to keep on coming back. But still, the, the faith to think like, okay, it can continue to work. Well, yeah, it was just sort of like evidence, though. Like, yeah, oh. there we go. That's the word I'm looking for, evidence. You had evidence, yeah. Uh-huh. And that's exactly what we're being asked to do. We're not asked to just believe. Blind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. Although, 
Um, and however hazy and unformed and ill-defined a manner, I did always have this idea that it was somehow important for us, for each person, to try to become a better person and go as far with that as you could, and that it was also somehow important for all people to try to form a better society. Yeah. Um, and where that came from, don't know. Still don't know. Uh, maybe there's a little bit of a faith element in that, uh, and kind of an innate feeling that this is important. Does that sound like faith, or does it sound like something else? Sounds like maybe it's that you have faith in the human capacity, or to to no, in the, the and that it was that it's important. That it's important somehow. Whether this importance is something we're making up or is out there somewhere, don't know. But but that if there's such thing as a purpose in life, some reason for us to be here, that's it. Hmm. Does that sound like something different? Yeah, that that sounds a little a little bit different. Woo woo. I think what's being pointed here, I like this word evidence, like this idea of like, okay, I have this little, this makes sense to me, and I have some little bit of evidence that this is going to work, and therefore I'm going to continue. That's kind of what that's being pointed to here. Um, I have two more questions, but they're really brief. One is, which sutta is this? And secondly, where do you find these uh, commentaries? I have never seen them anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so this is Sutta Napata one ten. Sutta Napata one ten, and the commentary to the Sutta Napata is the only commentary that I know of that is uh, translated into English. So that's why you haven't seen them. It's because they're just not there. They just don't. They're not. In oh, they're English. still not translated. That's right. Oh, where do you find them? Well, this Holly. one, this commentary is translated. This is the only one. Have you seen like Bika Bodhi? He has this, the Sutta Napata is like literally like four inches thick, okay. and the actual Sutta is like you know quarter inch, and the commentary is three. Oh yes, Sutta Napata. Yes, 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 yes. That that does have the commentary. Yes, and the commentary is huge. Yes. Okay. So some of the, there's crazy stories in there. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read them yet. Now, now I want to. I use this word crazy. I, they're playful and fun. I think that they are. So, yeah, you're welcome. Okay, okay. So, thank you all for your attention, and I wish you all a good rest of the evening. Thank you. <laughs>